Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Hey folks, today on the podcast, we have Mark Lutter. Mark runs a nonprofit, the Charter Cities Institute, which is building the ecosystem for charter cities. Before the Charter Cities Institute, Mark worked as the lead economist for a fund investing in early stage charter cities. Mark has a PhD in econ from George Mason Universities and a BS in math from the University of Maryland College Park. How are you doing today, Mark? Uh, Good, Uh, thanks for having me on. Definitely. So I wanted to get started and just uh, first question we have is, is what is a charter city and why should we care about them? Sure. So a charter city is a new city with better laws and we should care because over the long run, the most important determinant of economic outcomes tends to be governance. If you are well governed, you will tend to do relatively well. And if you are poorly governed, you will probably uh, remain relatively impoverished. And the challenge is on a national level, sometimes it can be difficult to do and implement deep reforms. Uh, There's a lot of interest groups at national levels. So national level politics tends to be a little bit uh, more stable. However, on a local level, particularly in a greenfield site where there are no constituents, it's possible to um, implement much more radical uh, reforms uh, that can, help create better governance systems that can help uh, uh, create the conditions for economic growth and poverty alleviation. And right now we are in the final um, urbanization, uh, period of urbanization in human history. We have uh, over 75 million new urban residents annually. Uh, We passed the 50% mark as a species, I think like three, four or five years ago. Um, And over the next 30 years, there will be about a little bit over 2 billion new urban residents. And we have the opportunity to create better urban spaces, both in terms of governance, as well as in terms of uh, physical infrastructure. Uh, and I think charter cities can play an important role in that to create those better institutions and to help lift uh, potentially tens of millions of people out of poverty. Very interesting. So, so you mentioned there, uh, good governance. Good governance seems to be really important. Uh, can you define good governance? What does that look like? Is that something that you know you see it and you say that's it, and it's not so much a set of rules? Or are there some like some rules that you like to think about when you think about good governance? Yeah, I think from a high level, uh, people should um, internalize the consequences of their actions. So when people do socially beneficial action, they should be rewarded. When people do, uh, socially harmful actions, they should be punished. And so an example of a socially beneficial action, would be something involving wealth creation. So the selling of a widget or the creation of a widget, a socially harmful action is something like theft where theft does not create new economic, does not create new output. It is merely the redistribution from, one person to another person. Uh, Similarly, violence tends to be a socially um, unproductive uh, behavior. Uh, It it leads to one person incurring physical or maybe property damage, uh, but it doesn't lead to more output. On a more practical level, this can be kind of approximated 
by um, things, uh, uh, right? There's a lot of indices around today, things like the Doing Business Index, Economic Freedom Index. They all measure approximately the same thing. Uh, we, we actually, it's recently been, uh, the World Bank's been kind of, I guess, reconsidering the Doing Business Index, but I think it's a reasonably good approximation for what uh, good institutions are. And these include things like how easy is it to start a business? How easy is it to resolve disputes? How easy is it to pay taxes? How easy is it to uh, get a building permit? Things like that. Um, and if we look around the world, some countries, uh, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the average, uh, uh, it takes on average 36% of per capita income just to legally register a business. And so if it takes that much to legally register a business, perhaps it's not a surprise that there is a lot of informal businesses um, uh, and it makes it very difficult for these businesses to scale. And so you can imagine some of these entrepreneurs in the informal section are very skilled. Uh, however, they might have a, let's say a fruit stand. They might even run several fruit stands, but they don't wanna scale up to running 20 fruit stands because then the police will notice, hey, this guy is running 20 fruit stands and then crack down. And because they don't have the proper legal permit, they're effectively prevented from really utilizing their full potential and their full talents. And this happens across a wide range of sectors, obviously not just fruit stands, but um, a, a, a lot of business opportunity, which uh, I think precludes the uh, creation of, of wealth and keeps a lot of these, these countries, unfortunately, uh, impoverished. Very cool. So it seems like, so charter cities are, are a chance to kind of start over, if that makes sense. Is that, is that a good way to think about it, to kind of go from ground zero and design institutions that are better than what exists currently in uh, countries across the world? Yeah, I think that's right. And so the way we approach um, the, the charter cities is by thinking of what does it mean to create a legal system from scratch? How should we think about things like a business registry, like a land registry, like what type of private law to use, what type of labor law to use, um, what taxes to implement. Uh, and so uh, create a, a governing structure that is more conducive to investment, to entrepreneurship, to job creation, and to long-term success that can hopefully set the stage uh, for that growth. And so if we think about some cities like Singapore, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and Dubai, they all became world-class cities in the last two to three generations um, in, in, in part because uh, of the, their, their governance systems that uh, demonstrated that they, they were stable, that they uh, respected property rights, things, things like that. And so we believe that this is replicable, uh, particularly across the global south that is urbanizing very rapidly. Uh, and so um, we view this as kind of an underexplored tool in, in the fight to alleviate global poverty. Super interesting. So you mentioned, you know, Dubai, Singapore, uh, some of these kind of classic case studies, Shenzhen of uh, cities that have done really well, well in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, you know, I, I worked in Shanghai for a little bit and it, it's amazing when you look at pictures across the river of at the development um, in Pudong, just like, it's incredible. It's incredible how fast some of these cities have grown. Um, can you, is that something we could replicate elsewhere? Is there like a finite limit to that? If that makes sense, I, th I think people would be interested to, to think about that. Yeah, I think we could definitely replicate those successes elsewhere. Um, we might not reach the scale. I think China's success over the last 40 years is arguably a little bit unique. But if we think about uh, places, for example, uh, Honduras per capita income is about $2,400 a year. 
if they get up to Mexican levels of wealth, uh, they will see about a 4x increase. And so that might not be the same as really these gleaming cities, but it would still be a substantial difference for the standard of living for the average uh, Honduran. In fact, not just the average, but probably all Hondurans, they would see a substantial increase in their standard of living. And so I think we need to be maybe uh, realistic about what uh, possible gains are to be had. Um, China, they prior to their uh, industrialization uh, under Mao, they basically forcibly prevented urbanization. And so there was this pent up demand for urbanization. They also had a long history of statehood, which tends to be uh, an important uh, uh, contributor for state capacity and the ability for a effective an effective administrative system. Um, Shenzhen, for example, they had a very large labor market that could attract uh, foreign direct investment. Um, and, and Shenzhen was close to Hong Kong. So they had a lot of, of personal um, ties that could be exploited uh, when Shenzhen began to open up. So uh, that scale might not be possible again, but I think similar outcomes to the extent that uh, um, right in Lagos, Nigeria, for example, today has 20 million residents and it's expected to grow to some estimates have it as high as 80 million, eight zero million residents by 2100. And so that's a huge, and you can imagine satellite cities of millions of people where if they implement charter cities rules might have much better outcomes than uh, uh, they would if they don't. And that might not be like Shenzhen level outcomes where Shenzhen I've seen estimates that their per capita income is as high as uh, $50,000 uh, adjusted for purchase and carry power. Maybe that's not possible in, in, in Lagos, but maybe they can get up to $10,000 purchase and carry power, which is much, much higher than what the, the, the average income is. And so if they can achieve that in a 40 year period or maybe up to 20,000, right? That is, I think, a, a, a huge improvement uh, and something that is arguably somewhat realistic if they're able to create the right uh, institutional set um, to allow that type of wealth creation. That makes a lot of sense. We can make people uh, much better off, even if we couldn't get them to the, the peak, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I have a quick question here. So why haven't we seen more charter city people try to do try charter cities before now? I, I know you're kind of the forefront of this, but have people just, have they not thought about it? Have they, uh, you know, why, why is that $20 bill lying on the sidewalk? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. Well, having spent a few years working on it, the $20 bill is pretty hard to pick up. It's hard to pick up. Um, gotcha. Uh, so, I mean, Paul Romer, for example, he originated kind of the modern conception of charter cities. In 2009, he had an opportunity in Madagascar, he had an opportunity in Honduras. A lot of interest and attention was generated then, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to really execute on it. Um, and he was a Nobel laureate caliber economist. He has since won the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, uh, but I, I think it's, it's, I would say, a number of factors. One, his version was a high-income country would act as, the, as basically the guarantor or the city administrator in a low-income country. And that is politically challenging for a number of reasons. Uh, I think a second factor is um, that uh, the international development community has kind of given up on big ideas. They tend to focus much more heavily on um, uh, healthcare and health provision which is quite good. If you look at the, the life expectancy rates, for example, in emerging markets, 
over the last few decades, they've all gone very high. Infant mortality, for example, has, has severely dropped. So there have been substantial improvements in health and outcomes largely due to um, the international development community. Uh, but they have just lost interest in these kind of, I don't know, transformational changes. I think part of it is, right, charter cities require a, a explicitly political approach. You need to convince governments to create these, these frameworks, um, which requires a degree of government buy-in that is quite difficult to get. Um, and then you need to attract uh, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions and maybe billions of dollars of investment to really get these, these projects uh, uh, off the ground. And what we're seeing is that there are a lot of conversations that are like somewhat adjacent to charter cities, but they haven't really fully understood charter cities. And then second, while, while there is a lot of interest, for example, in new city developments, uh, Ramaphosa, for example, the, the, the president of South yeah. Africa has been pushing a new city in, in South Africa in um, uh, Guateng, which is the province where Johannesburg is. Um, these projects tend to focus on like really shiny gleaming cities where it's, 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 they, they look at like China and they see, okay, Shenzhen is shiny, right? Like Beijing is shiny, uh, Shanghai is shiny. So let's just like hire some fancy architects and build shiny cities. A similar pattern happened in kind of the Middle East and the surrounding region where everybody looked at Dubai and said, okay, right, what makes Dubai? Dubai is great. They have these great buildings. So let's just hire architects and pay them too much money and get these great buildings without realizing that the buildings are a consequence of wealth creation, not a cause of wealth creation. And so there hasn't really been this interest in figuring out how to push the price point of new cities down, how to make them more accessible, uh, because it's not obvious. You have to think a little bit about it. Um, and then lastly, right, governments don't really like giving up authority. And for a charter city, government does have to give up authority and say, hey, we're going to allow this, right? You might still be part of our country, but there'll be a different administrative system within this region which um, can be challenging, and then particularly in regions that have a, a history of uh, a kind of ethnic tension, that might be particularly challenging because it might be seen as one ethnic group benefiting primarily, uh, which might uh, threaten the, 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 the political equilibrium. Gotcha. So, so where are you guys trying this right now? Um, I, I saw some things, maybe it was in Zambia, I think I saw that on maybe your Twitter page or something. Yeah, so the Charter Cities Institute acts uh, kind of, we have two roles. One is that we act as a um, think tank. So we have a podcast, the Charter Cities Podcast. We have a blog, we put out papers, we do events, uh, we have a newsletter, all the standard think tank stuff. Then in addition to being a think tank, we also work as a uh, basically offering technical assistance to new city developments on the ground. So nice. currently we have worked and are working in, in Zambia. We are working with Mkwashi. It is a new city development of uh, planned for 100,000 residents outside of Lusaka. There, uh, it's on 3,100 acres and their anchor tenant is a university. So we signed a memorandum of understanding with the Zambia Development Agency last February. Unfortunately, the follow-up has been relatively slow uh, in part because of COVID. Uh, um, then in Nigeria, we are working with Talent City, led by an entrepreneur named Ayuno Lua Aboyeji. And they are uh, 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 re basically leasing a former special economic zone to create a, a, a tech hub targeting uh, the, the Lagos tech sector, which has one of the strongest uh, technology sectors in, in Africa. Uh, we are also working in Nigeria with uh, Nyimba Economic City, 
They won our uh, Charter Cities Business Plan Contest last year, and they have acquired 25,000 acres, um, which is a little bit under 100 square kilometers, and they have a planned city for 1.5 million residents. Uh, they are currently doing their first fundraising round um, to, for the phase one build out. So we're quite excited about that project. And we've been helping a little bit with a project in Honduras, uh, Ciudad Morazan, um, which is focusing on creating a small industrial park and uh, some living opportunities in the San Pedro Sula Valley. Uh, and there's a handful of other projects that we've also been in conversations with or aware of. And what we see as key to the long-term success of the charter city space is to create this knowledge sharing, is to create uh, a set of best practices because there are a lot of projects going on. So let's figure out what's working. Let's understand what's not working. Let's share those experiences um, and allow for these projects to hopefully scale up and, and really deliver the change that is uh, necessary and valuable for, for uh, the, the residents. Makes sense. So I wanted to, to move on a little bit. In, on average and in general, do you think governance has gotten worse over time or gotten better? Um, well, I guess it depends on how what the time frame is. Um, gotcha. Uh, right. If we think back to, I don't know, um, 1500, I think obviously governance has gotten a lot better. Uh, even if we think back to 1960, in some ways, governance has gotten a lot better than 1960. I mean, um, uh, 1964, for example, there's relatively strong evidence that LBJ stole the election. Um, <laughs> uh, and despite Trump's protestations, uh, right, I think there's yeah. very little doubt that there anybody stole the election this time or really that it could be stolen because it's, I think, much more transparent and clear. Um, at the same time, I think some things have uh, gotten worse. I think there is far less, uh, say, capacity in a lot of sectors. I don't think we could do something like the Apollo Project today. Um, uh, uh, and, and so while there has been a little bit more regularity, a little bit more transparency, I think there has been a, a, a certain decrease in capacity over the last uh, several decades where the government just doesn't really have the, the will or the ability to undertake large, uh, uh, execute effectively on large projects anymore. And uh, one example of this is the Golden Gate Bridge. It was built in the 30s during the Great Depression. It took about three and a half years. I believe they finished it like ahead of schedule and they built a what's effectively a like on-ramp to the Golden Gate Bridge, like a mile and a half tunnel um, they finished that in the early 2010s and it took like seven years and went over budget and just like, okay, it shouldn't take more time to build what's like a mile and a half tunnel going to the Golden Gate Bridge than like the Golden Gate Bridge uh, itself. And so this, this I mean, this, I think uh, we, we see this also with housing, uh, right? Like most, uh, a lot of major American cities have made it very difficult to build additional housing. And so housing prices have uh, really, really uh, increased, and uh, it's it's. Uh, I think there has been kind of the proliferation of a what has been described as a vetoocracy, uh, or just uh, um, with with uh, kind of Mansour also described it in his book, The Rise and Decline of Nations. Uh, that there are a lot of entrenched interest groups that just make it very difficult to uh, for government to kind of execute on on large tasks or, or very effectively anymore that makes sense so i i i'm interested um 
what what can the West do to counter China's rise and do charter cities play a role in that? Sure. So I think there's a lot of things that the West could do to, to help counter China. I mean, one, I think people overrate uh, China's rise a little bit. Um, the rise has been quite impressive, but I think that there are still several uh, things that are a little bit underrated in, or maybe overrated in China. So for example, China's working age population is already declining. Uh, demographic which, collapse. Yeah, kind of they, yeah and, and that's going to get worse and that's going to be a relatively severe problem. Uh, second, China's a net food and energy importer. So uh, they're much more dependent on the global trade, which is effectively subsidized by, the Amer by, by America. Uh, and the US is a net food and energy exporter uh, like uh, because of the share revolution we are exporting more uh, energy than we are are using so um, this I think puts and, and the US has a much more right we don't our, our birth rate is, is below replacement but our it's much better than than China's we're not looking at the same demographic collapse that that, that China is uh, and so longer term I'm, I'm relatively optimistic about the US I think obviously there are a lot of things the US could do and could do much better. Our political system is in a period of relatively severe crisis. Um, I think uh, the turn against immigration, particularly high skilled immigration, is is pretty bad. Uh, I think our ability to be a giant vacuum sucking up all the smartest people has been uh, great for not just America but also the world because people are empowered to really create things that they probably would not have been able to create. In their home countries. Uh, I mean, Elon Musk probably could not build SpaceX or Tesla in South Africa. And so it's great that he was able to come to the US and build uh, both SpaceX and uh, Tesla. And so um, this turn against immigration, I think, is, is uh, relatively negative for our ability to um, kind of produce better technology than China and, and compete with China on that margin. Our governance is also a relatively severe challenge that we are facing in the short and, and medium term. Hopefully we can fix it over the longer term. Um, and uh, I, as to how charter cities fit in, I think China has been incurring influence around the world, uh, having emphasis in, in, in Asia and Pakistan and, and also in Africa with Belt and Road, where they've invested major amounts of heavy infrastructure uh, in a lot of countries. And I think uh, the US has had their reputation, I guess, damaged a little bit um, in the sense that uh, these countries are realized like, hey, China's building us a new train. They're building us a new airport. Well, the U.S. hasn't really uh, done that, uh, combined with the fact that U.S. foreign policy has perhaps been adrift uh, relatively, I mean, not even recently, over the last several decades in terms of unnecessary wars. Um, and so I think a uh, charter cities can help maybe America retake our, 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 our role in global leadership, one with investment, and hopefully this investment can be better structured than much of the Belt and Road, as the Belt and Road is, is being pulled back right now because of uh, basically overextension. Gotcha. And then uh, second, it can help demonstrate the values, what I view as kind of for the American values, what I hope are, are world values of uh, markets, of, of the value of property, of the value of civil liberties, of, of, of speech. Um, freedom of speech, and hopefully that that charter cities can really demonstrate these values in in other countries and really help uh, um, America retain its its role as as a global leader. That makes sense. So I wanted to move on now, and I'm going to throw a few terms out, and I'd like you just to tell me uh, 
whether they're overrated, underrated, and perhaps why, if you have any thoughts. I blatantly stole this from conversations with Tyler. Um, so Henry George, underrated or overrated? Um, I would say he is underrated by most people, but he's probably overrated by his disciples. There's a few gotcha. Georges uh, still hanging around. And uh, at least when you get in the close communities, I find them, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit overzealous, but I think in general, uh, yeah, the land tax is probably the most efficient tax. Um, and uh, if we look at uh, particularly in the U.S. with a lot of the housing challenges that the U.S. is facing, um, having a land tax would go a, a, a reasonably high way to, I think, solving some of those challenges. Uh, so generally, I, I think, yeah, he's, he's underrated. Interesting. Seasteading. Huh. Um, I would say, again, I guess this depends on the audience. I think globally, it's probably like, like uh, Henry George, globally underrated, I think maybe locally overrated. I think there are a few seasteading fanatics uh, who I think perhaps overrate it because I think it's, it's very difficult to actually right, get the engineering right um, to get floating platforms. It's just not practical at all. Um, and maybe future technology will make it practical, but it, it, it's, it's, for now, it's kind of similar to, I don't know, um, right, like uh, uh, people living in space. It's just, it, it's a huge net, uh, it, it can be done, but it's a huge, for, for the consumption of a huge amount of resources. Um, but I mean, globally, it, it's probably underrated to the extent that I think it does have this powerful vision about uh, governments, uh, competitive governments, thinking about new forms of systems. Um, and I think the challenge and what we're hoping to do with the Charters Institute is to figure out how that vision can be kind of translated into uh, something a little bit more real. If we look throughout the history of political philosophy, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of ideas that really promote um, uh, uh, things that like end up becoming, I don't know, niche topics in uh, academia, where you've got a bunch of students and a few dozen professors who talk about Marxist anarchism or whatever that niche topic is. And uh, I think what, uh, to me, that's just not interesting. Like nobody cares what this ideal conception of a good society is, like what is possible in the real world. And um, hopefully charter cities can help are uh, actually affect real world change and, and be more than just a, a, a esoteric topic for discussion. And, and I think they can help kind of the, the seasteading ideas then, then become implemented. Very cool. Uh, open borders, overrated, underrated? Um, I would probably say overrated. I'm like, I guess lean slightly in the, and again, this sort of depends on who the audience is. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe slightly in the, the Garrett Jones camp um, to the extent that, uh, right, um, would it be beneficial for America and for the world if 1 billion Indians all like instantly moved to America? And the answer is probably no. Uh, would it be beneficial if like uh, 100,000 moved to the US? Probably yes. And so then the question is, all right, now we're just to use kind of the, the bastardization of the Winston Churchill quote, like now we're just haggling over price, right. um, which is uh, important, but that I think suggests that, right, like truly fully open borders 
are might not be be fully practical. I, I think civilization is quite important, and it is perhaps sometimes a little bit more fragile than uh, uh, we realize. In the U.S., for example, when we've hit um, uh, typically it's between 20 and 25 percent of the population being foreign-born, there tends to be very strong pushback, and gotcha. that tends to be relatively uh, destabilizing. Um, and so maybe 30% works, maybe even 40% works, but like 50% with that work. Um, if we look at, for example, uh, Dubai, which has the highest percentage of foreign born citizens of any city in the world, it's around 90% of the, uh, not the citizens of the residents are foreign born, right? Those residents basically have no rights. Um, gotcha. They very rarely do they retire. They have no path to citizenship. They, they, they I, I, I don't I think there are any like meaningful social programs in Dubai. Um, if they like are lose their house, even if they go into debt, they, they can't can get thrown into jail or just put back on a plane and shipped home. And uh, to me, that's a right. That's okay yeah. if that happens in like one or two instances. But this conception of citizenship that has this kind of right sense of obligations and as well as duties is much more broad than that, and I think is is generally a a, a, a good thing. But it's dependent on um, at least a a kind of belief in this this whole thing that we are together in, and that requires at least a, a somewhat um, I don't know a, a a process of affirmation for for new citizens that can be overwhelmed if you're doubling the population uh, uh, with with migrants in, in just one generation or something like that. That makes sense. Interesting. A few more here. So George Mason University, overrated, underrated? Yeah, I think it's underrated, I would say. I mean, it's, it's again, this depends on who you're talking to. Um, but right, like it's, it's a, a basically mid-tier university in terms of rankings, but if you look at the actual um, intellectual influence of George Mason, it's probably uh, comparable with Harvard or with Stanford. You have like for, I think Paul Graham recently tweeted like, oh, I just realized like uh, out of all the economists I follow, like half of them are from George Mason. <laughs> um, and I think Vitalik Buterin, for example, tweeted something like somewhat similar as well within the last six months. And so you have all of these uh, very high influential people type Callan, for example, is Silicon Valley's favorite economist, or at least favorite living economist. And so they do have a very outsized influence on the general um, intellectual discourse, even if by uh, traditional kind of econ PhD uh, rankings, it is not really as high. Got it. Well put. So I've got one more here. So Paul Romer, overrated, underrated? I would say probably still underrated. I mean, I guess it's hard to be underrated when you've won a Nobel Prize. But for example, one thing I don't hear anybody really talking about is he left academia, I believe, in the early 2000s and started a online education platform. I think it was Aplia and ended up selling it for a boatload of money, uh, wow. where it's, it's very, I think, impressive to um, contribute highly, not just to one domain, but to multiple domains. There's only really a handful of people. Most, most highly successful people are highly successful in a single domain. So they might right. be very good at business, but you see when they get into politics, they make the fool of themselves or something like that. And so um, the fact that he was able to be a Nobel caliber economist, even though he took about 10 year hiatus in his career, the fact that he was able to um, 
uh, start a online education platform business and become relatively successful at that. And then like his charter cities push wasn't really economics, right? It was drawing some principles from economics, but it was more of a, I don't know, like popular, like a, like kind of popular econ type, like public intellectual move that I don't think fits neatly into the like economics bucket. He wasn't publishing papers on it. He wasn't right engaged gotcha. in what would be considered like I don't know, tenure track economics research. So that's arguably three domains that he's had relatively high impacts in. Um, and if we compare him to other recent Nobel laureates, for example, the winners uh, last, well, I guess, oh man, I already forgot who won this year, but the winners last year, um, uh, uh, Esther Duflo, Michael Kramer. Yeah, and, the RCT uh, stuff. Yeah, the Banner Banerjee, right? They are all excellent economists. They contribute greatly to economics, but um, the, only economics. Uh, I mean, Duflo and Banerjee have both also written like popular books, but they're basically popular economics books. Uh, and so they have mastered a single domain, but they haven't really branched out to others. And maybe they could be good. Obviously, they're very smart. Um, but like, uh, uh, at least Stromer has a track record of branching out to other domains. And so that is something that is worth, uh, I think, considering. Very cool. So Mark, uh, where should people find you? Where should they go learn more about Charter Cities? Um, anything like that? Sure. So uh, you can go to our website at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Uh, um, you can sign up for our newsletter. I believe it's at the bottom of our website. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Mark, M-A-R-K, letter L-U-T-T-E-R. You can follow Charter Cities Institute at city, cci.city. Follow Charter Cities Institute on Facebook, on LinkedIn. We have an Instagram page that is not very active, though hopefully it will be soon. Um, you can check out our podcast, the Charter Cities Podcast, available on all, all podcast uh, apps. Uh, so yeah, we'd love to have you uh, follow and engage. That's great. And I, I think my dad had one more question about uh, Hong Kong. Is that right, Dad? Well, and I have actually two questions. And the second question is going to be the Hong Kong question because okay. Charter Cities are a new concept for me. And so as I read about them, I realize, for instance, in California, 25% of the cities are charter cities, including Los Angeles and Sacramento and San Francisco. Have can you give me some historical perspective on charter cities? Sure. So the, the term charter city is used a little bit differently in, in how I'm using it than in how, I guess, California is using it. We are using the term with the Charter Cities Institute to be a new city with different laws from the host country. And so this would be somewhere like Hong Kong, not really anymore, but at least previously, it was one country, two systems, where on Hong Kong, while it was part of China, they operated under common law, they had their a, a very differentiated legal system. Um, in California, it's just used for a different, I haven't fully researched this, but my understanding is it is just used for a different, um, type, like uh, basically a city incorporation. That yeah. has a small amount of kind of right, authority that the traditional incorporation wouldn't, but it's um, more or less uh, similar to to a traditional incorporation where, right, like Hong Kong and China, common law, not common law. Uh, that's a pretty big difference. And California, it might be something like they have some quirk that allow that lets them pass taxes a little bit differently than a a, a city that isn't a charter city. And can you then can you tell me more about your your role as a strategic advisor to the Victoria Harbor Group, which is uh, interested in building a new city for the Hong Kong people? 
Sure. So I joined them in, I guess, April. Uh, they reached out to me and uh, given the changes in the Hong Kong situation, the Chinese passed the national security law in June, July. Uh, a lot of Hong Kongers are looking to migrate um, now and uh, over the coming decade. In about a year ago, and this was before the passage of the national security law, I think 40% of Hong Kongers were interested in migrating, and that number has probably increased uh, because this is the, the, the a lot of them feel that the the new rules uh, are are a little bit um, restrictive, and so this is the first mass migration of high skilled, high human capital uh, people in 40 years, and so um, while a lot of them will move to places like New York to Vancouver, to uh, London. A lot of them might not have the resources, either financial or the network to move to those cities and um, really maintain their standard of living. And so the Victoria Harbor group is currently scouting land to do uh, new city developments, new town developments, basically create settlements for the Hong Kong people that can be um, uh, create jobs, uh, allow for some kind of communal self-help, uh, as well as perhaps be a little bit more accessible than some of the kind of tier one cities that tend to be relatively uh, expensive, particularly if you're moving from another country and don't have a strong network that can uh, immediately support you upon your arrival. Great. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 